I'm Alistair Stevens. I'm Elizabeth Ray. And Tom Cruise is Steph Georgievich in All the Right Moves. If you've ever done any kind of research on the internet, any kind of academic research or quasi-academic research <laughs> like for a podcast on the internet, then you will have encountered one of the great untold treasure troves of Wikipedia. It has pages that are just lists of things. Have you encountered this? Just lists of all the cars that were ever made in Detroit. Oh, wow. All the fruits that were ever imported from the Far East to Europe during the 15th century. Lists and lists and lists. One of the great lists that I was perusing today was list of films about American football. You know, I love American football films. There are 199 films on that list. Wow. Which yep. is no great surprise, perhaps, because A, American football, national pastime, like yeah. absolutely encoded into the national yeah. identity of this country, but also a really great narrative structure. That's not mm. unique to American football, but to all sports. Sports are rules and clarity and a decisive victory at the end. Very true. Excellent for stories. Yeah, yeah. And I love football movies. I had kind of forgotten about that until I started it again. And so like the letter jackets and the people get on the bus. And I was like, you know what? I really <laughs> do. Remember how much we loved Friday Night Lights? Friday Night Lights. Friday Night Lights anyway, before it kind of went off the rails. But it found its way back more or less a little bit again. I've always heard that about Friday Night Lights. Friday Night that Lights comes has a killer for the, the, the movie is good, firstly. Mm -hmm. Movie's then good. it has a killer first season totally. as a TV show. The second season goes off the rails as violently as anything as has ever gone off the anything rails. Anything has ever gone off the rails. Yes. But then insane. I've heard that the third and fourth seasons pull it back and yeah. kind of discount a lot of what happened in the second season. Like, wow, remember when that happened? That sure was crazy. <laughs> but I've never made it through the second season to find out for myself. Yeah, I, I should do that why. someday. You should. If you we should. ever have another pandemic, I'll have all of the time in the world to make it yeah. through Friday Night Lights. Because then you don't get any of the good Riggin stuff. All the no. good Riggins storylines come later, and Riggins he's a is great character. Pretty bad as far as I've watched, except that he looks like Taylor Kitsch and is therefore extremely easy on yes. the eye. That's, that's <laughs> a very eye-easy cast, it's, all things considered. Yes. Yeah, it's a pretty, pretty cast of people, definitely. So what are your other favorite football movies? What, what stands out to you? Uh, it, well, it's funny. Watching this one open up, I was literally like, did we make a mistake? Is this Rudy? <laughs> because it's such a similar beginning. Th this, that also, like... His dad is Steel Town Steel Worker or something, yeah, right? Absolutely. Yeah, that's what I thought. Um, but I don't remember Rudy almost at all. I watched it in school, which is weird, mm -hmm. presumably because I went to a Catholic school and it's set in a Catholic college. That's the only wow. thing that I could possibly think was the through line because it's certainly not something that you watch at school for any other reason. You didn't right? take AP football movies? Right, exactly. I can't imagine, you know, how you watch Mulan for world history. Like it wasn't even <laughs> like that. I don't know. <laughs> Um, and of course, uh, Remember the Titans is a big one that I enjoyed. <laughs> Who can forget Little Giants? With uh... Oh, I don't know a Little oh, Giants. Little Giants is a silly one from when, oh, it was probably like mid-90s, I guess, that had Rick Moranis as the football coach. Oh, really? Yes. Fun. <laughs> yeah. So that was a lot of fun. And it's, it's a kid's movie. Um, but yeah, but you're right. It's just always good, fun storytelling and, you know. Yeah, that narrative the long, construction. The slow arc of the ball exactly, across right? the field. And is he going to catch it? It's just exciting. I was thinking about that cinematic element in particular while mm. watching this film, which is a gorgeously shot film. I think this is by far the best looking film that we've watched so far, though it was 
basically made on a shoestring. I think that's so fascinating. I disagree with you on there. But really? Yeah, I do. I thought it was largely underexposed, which was befitting because, I mean, I think that they used setting to tremendous advantage. It's Johnstown, Pennsylvania, yes, where they shot, that's correct? Right. Which is such a find. I mean, this place looks grim and bleak and cold. And mm-hmm. so you it really does give me this extra emotional um, empathy for the characters to yeah. want to want them to get out of there. You know, it looks like it sucks, frankly. I uh, think that's what I mean about the cinematography, though, is, is you're right. It's not flashy. It's not doing no. anything particularly clever or stylish or avant-garde, but it very transparently communicates the yes. nature, the soul of this place. It's very yes. unobtrusive cinematography. And the way that we just let long sequences play out with a locked camera and an infinite depth of field mm-hmm. really feels powerful and in times overwhelming. There, there are yeah. moments when I, I had a real physical reaction to watching this film just because the cinematography is so clean, you know? That's very interesting. Yeah, I guess I didn't think of it that way. I, I was just thinking so much about how great the setting and location was. Uh, the cinematography itself seemed fairly simple. And like I said, often underexposed, I felt just a bit grimy. I think that's an absolutely fair point. We'll get into the details of the production Mm. in just a moment. First, we have the trailer game. Oh, no. For the trailer game, (laughs) how about a different game? Oh. You want to put off the trailer game for just a few moments with a little idle something? (laughs) As I said, 199 films on the Wikipedia list of American football films. Wow. But there are also movies about other sports. Oh, yeah. So I've compiled a very quick game here where I'm going to give you the names of three films and you're going to tell me which one is not about American football. Easy, right? All right. I love it. Here we go. First round. The Great McCarthy, Quarterback Princess, and Semi-Tough. Which one of those is not about American football? I'm going to say The Great McCarthy. That sounds like a war movie. Oh, that's interesting. They are all about sports. Oh. But in the end, is sport not simply the ritualized warfare (laughs) conducted between peoples? I'm sorry. I slipped into something else there for a moment. You're right. The Great McCarthy is a 1975 comedy about Australian rules football, which if you've never seen it, looks like American football denuded of pads. Uh It's anarchic. It's crazy. (laughs) You've got to touch the ball to the ground, but you're not allowed to throw. There's all of these. You're bouncing the ball, but the ball is, you know, American football shaped. It is oval. It's erratic and going everywhere. (laughs) It's crazy. That does seem crazy. (laughs) Quarterback Princess, a 1983 uh, I've seen that one. There you go. So you mm-hmm. knew that one about mm-hmm. a girl who wants to be a quarterback on her quarterback. team. Semi Tough is a 1977 sports comedy directed by Michael Ritchie, starring Burt Reynolds and Chris Christopherson. Cool. Okay. So a lot of body hair, I'm going to imagine, <laughs> yeah. in that film. Excellent. One point to you. Let's move on to round two. Okay. Which one of these is not an American football film? Wildcats from 1986, The Replacements from 2000, or Fired Up from 2009? The Replacements is a soccer movie with Keanu Reeves. Right? You're half right. The Replacements is a Keanu Reeves movie, but it is not a soccer movie. It is an American football movie. It's a football movie. No, because the guy, the soccer guy, is there's a Scottish guy who's a soccer guy who comes in to be the kicker, and you're right, and I messed it up. Darn that's, it. That's I knew that. That's Reese Evans, isn't it? From uh, Notting the Hill? The gangly, the Notting Hill guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, who's also uh, Luna Lovegood's dad. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Here are our cultural references. Richard Curtis comedies and Harry Potter. Yes, The Replacements is based on the 1987 NFL strike, which is why we're bringing in 
eponymous replacements. Damn, I biffed it. Okay. Well, I all guess right. so. I mean, I can let you choose between <laughs> Wildcats and Fired Up if you like. Uh, Wildcats. <laughs> Wildcats is, I'm afraid, an American football okay. movie. Well, from 1986, <laughs> directed by Michael Ritchie, starring Goldie Hawn, uh, James Keach, and Susie Kurtz. Didn't Michael Ritchie direct the last one that you said too, the the Burt Reynolds one? You're completely right, and I hadn't put that together That's until right crazy. now. Crazy. Man loves his football movies. Okay. One in 1977, one in 1986. Wow. wow. Okay. I'm sorry. The fake one this time, though, is Fired Up, a 2009 American teen sex comedy directed by Will Gluck, who would go on after this to direct Easy A, to direct oh. Friends with Benefits. But this is his debut. It is about two popular high school football players okay. who decide to go and enroll in cheerleading camp so that Cute. they can be around 300 hot yeah, girls. Naturally. Yeah, naturally. Yeah. Okay. But apparently they get kind of into the cheerleading and it's a sports <laughs> movie about cheerleading. That's cool. Cheerleading, I like that. Absolutely a sport. Absolutely. So you're one for two in this very scientific game. Let's move on to the closing round okay. here. Okay. Which one of these films is not about football? Is it Gus, a movie about a mule playing football? Is it Bonzo Goes to College, a movie about an ape playing football? Or is it Air Bud, a movie about a dog playing football? Air Bud is a movie about a dog playing basketball. You're absolutely right, of course. We will need to wait until 1998 for Air Bud Golden Receiver before we have a movie about a dog playing football. That's kind of a great title. Somebody high-fived when they got that. <laughs> Gus is a 1976 film about a mule that can kick field goals That's from anywhere insane. on the field. Okay. Bonzo Goes to College, a movie starring Ronald Reagan from 1952 about yes. an ape that can play football. Wild. Okay. If you're ever in need of some distraction, go check out the Wikipedia list of movies about animals playing sports. <laughs> that is a real thing. I will link to it in the show notes. You're welcome. You're two for three. That's pretty good. Okay. All right. Not so bad. I feel bad about the replacements when I knew that. But well, that's okay. You were so close. I still didn't know what the answer was. I just knew that replacements was football. Anyway. You did. It's okay. <laughs> I'm a straight A student and I don't like to lose. <laughs> Sorry. What I meant to say was you did 100% correct. Thank good job. You. <laughs> With that, now your confidence is all boosted. Let's get into the trailer game, shall the we? The trailer game. I don't know how yes. you could possibly uh, encapsulate all of the labyrinths and twists I, and turns I, of this plot. I don't know. This is going to be a little sloppy, I think. Okay. All right. In the soot and the grime and the gray skies of western Pennsylvania... The only light that shines is the sparks flying from the steel mill. The young men and women of this community have no hope and no future outside of football. The golden ticket, the one way out. But if coach doesn't see you, if coach doesn't push you further, if coach instead stands in the way, where is your future now? Tom Cruise... <laughs> As Steph Georgievich, Leah Thompson as Lisa. Coming soon. Oh, and don't forget Jesus from Like a Prayer in <laughs> All the Right Moves. So that was that. That was fantastic. Thanks. That goosebumps from that Aww, one. That was crazy. Thanks. <laughs> So as we've discussed, this is Tom Cruise's fourth released film in 1983. This is his miracle year. This mm -hmm. absolutely sets the stage for the next amazing part of his career. And what's so interesting, I think, about this film is that it feels both connected to and very separate from everything else that he has done so far. Definitely. 
it's closest, I suppose, to The Outsiders, right? But it lacks mm, any okay. of The Outsiders' ambition. Just, you know, a depiction of poverty, a depiction of desperation, sure. a, a depiction of of difficult circumstances kind of forcing change upon a protagonist. Yeah, yeah. So the film rather than the character. Okay. Yes, yeah. Yes. Oh, no, absolutely. Yeah, I was like, Not uh, a lot of Steve Randall in this. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> what do you make of that connection? Do you find Tom Cruise convincing? Because we've just watched him in a couple of very you know, yuppie roles. Yes. What do you think of him as an actor in this kind of position? I have to say this so far is my favorite. I think that he really shines in this role and I think he's lovely. I also think that it's the first time I felt like I got, there he is, there's Tom Cruise delivering the speech and doing the thing, which is that last sequence with him and Craig T. Nelson when... After the diner. Yes, after the diner, A right? fantastic sequence. So great, yeah. When it's so beautifully written, too, the way mm -hmm. that he falters and kind of just breaks apart at the end of it, yes. only to run off and in the shadow of the church. And it's our first Tom Cruise run. We've been talking about Tom Cruise running. He is all over this film, physically speaking. Yeah. It's it's a remarkable achievement. I will tell you right now, there were no stunt performers employed by this mm. film. Everything that you see is real. Damn. All the actors do their actual their actual stunts, which particularly on the field. I've got to say, there were some hard hits on that. It's remarkable. Yeah. Okay. That's cool. I'm so glad that you feel that way about Cruise in this film. I completely mm -hmm. agree. Oh, good. This was not a really great film. It's not a really great no. film because it's not much of a film. Honestly, it has a 90 minute running time and even then it feels padded and the last half mm -hmm. in particular yes. feels really quite aimless at some points. But Cruz is fantastic at the heart of it. Yeah, I really do think so too. Although sometimes a real piece of work, he can be a shithead, the character. Yes. He's yeah. really communicating something complex and ugly. You really yeah. get the sense of his family's history in this place and before they came to this place, right? He's mm -hmm. playing a, a Serbian-American immigrant, technically speaking. And we get, I think, a lot of that sense of, of pressure and inheritance. Yes. The weight of the past is pressing down on this small town in Pennsylvania. Mm, yes. Although I was mostly referring to him being a very bad boyfriend to Lisa, but... Also that, but I think yeah. that's also a manifestation of the same thing. That, right? you it's know, also, sure, yeah. sure. Until the second half of the film where we just kind of break that relationship in an interesting way. Yeah, I think it's, it's interesting because it strikes me as the kind of script that at some point a woman got their hands on and was like, listen, <laughs> she's got to at least say something about this treatment. You are <laughs> so right. And you will never guess which woman it is. Wow. Okay. No, tell me. This film is conceived. This just comes out of the studio. This isn't an adaptation of a prior work. It wasn't written on spec by a screenwriter. It comes out of 20th Century Fox. It comes out of the mind of executive producer Gary Morton and his wife, Lucille Ball. <gasps> Lucille Ball, Ball feminist icon, works as an executive producer on this film. She is completely present and okay. active in this film. You didn't see her name in the credits because she asked that her name be removed because she does not like her name appearing on R-rated works. Okay. All right. It's, a, it's an odd decision, but, it, but she absolutely brings together Lisa and Mrs. Nickerson at mm -hmm. the end of the film and, and gives this really interesting and complex and also, we should note, incomplete, incomplete perspective yeah. on the subtle power of femininity in communities like these, in communities which are defined so much by physicality, by masculinity, by Absolutely. tradition, too. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to see that that very traditional kind of notion of feminine power working under the surface to create sure. greater good. 
but sure. a self-sacrificing kind of greater good too. Yeah, no, it's, it's it's it does not land on its feet there. Lisa gets that great sequence where she stands up to Steph and is like, "You can't treat me like this. You yelled at me in front of so all your fantastic. friends. It was humiliating, and how dare you?" He's you know you know what I was an asshole, and he was. So it moves kind of fast. But I was really, really grateful that she did say all the right things and stand up for herself. And in the end, just love him, which is a thing that happens and okay. Uh, however, the conversation with Miss Nickerson, I think, worked less for me because it was so, I mean, first of all, fails the Bechdel test, right? Like, they're definitely just talking about the men in their lives. And then there's that little glimmer of that moment where Mrs. Nickerson asks, you know, what is it that you hope to do? And she says, oh, I want to study music. But it's like tacked on. And again, that's how I felt like there was a woman who got hold of the script and was like, could she also maybe say something about her own self and not just this boy? But I'm not sure. But it's it's that problem of asking a question that you do not know the answer to as a screenwriter, right? Like mm. It's easy to have your characters point out flaws in the plot because you want to write intelligent characters. And right. they're intelligently dealing with their circumstances. And they're going to say, well, wait, why isn't this happening? <laughs> Yes. And you can't do that in a script unless you have a good answer. And this script does not have an answer. Absolutely not. But in part, that's because this world, this reality does not have an answer for girls like Lisa. Yes. Which I think is, yeah, which is haunting and lovely if it's addressed more. But in the end, when he gets his scholarship and gets to go off to Polytech with Coach and she's just like throwing her arms around him and kissing him on the neck, it's like, oh, that's really sweet. What happens to her, though, you know? Yeah. There's still no sense of there being a way out for her. Oh, well, I... she gets swept up in Tom Cruise's arms and they spin around under, I the, know. under the plant and sign, under the steel mill sign. And she celebrates him or whatever. Yeah. And that's nice. But there should have been a moment, even where it's just like, we're going to part ways now. And that, I think that could have been lovely and haunting and tragic. But And we do kind of nod to that. It's if he goes, you're going to lose him. That's... Right. And she know. says, I do love him, so I have to let him go, which is nice. It's so grown up. It's grown up. No. It's... Kind of heartbreaking. I, I'm not sure. I think this film might be really quite good. I'm going to figure that out as we move forward yeah. through this discussion, I'm sure. Yeah. There's a lot to really like here. It just, yeah, it feels a little bit first pass sometimes, or even second pass. That I think like is Like not fair. polished. That's yeah. right. It feels second pass, but not polished. I think that's absolutely true. Yeah. We'll, we'll talk about where some of those breaking points are as we move through our mm-hmm. beat-by-beat exploration of the film. So at 20th Century Fox, Morton and Ball set the production budget for this film at $6 million, which is roughly the same as Risky Business. This film does not look like Risky Business looks, but they're actually going mm. to Johnstown, Pennsylvania. Yeah. They're actually going to a real steel mill town. They actually shoot the whole thing there. They inject a roughly $3 million into the economy of this struggling town. That's hot. Yeah. That's really great. And it is a masterclass on setting and location. It really is. The script is written by Michael Caine, not Michael Caine, <laughs> but a New York screenwriter with a string of relatively unsuccessful films through the 70s, but he's, he's a, a working screenwriter for Fox at the time. He is hired. He goes to the town of Alakippa, Pennsylvania, where he works with a high school coach to figure out how high school football works in these communities, mm. what it means, what it is, what it represents. Craig T. Nelson also goes to that town and shadows that coach too. This is his first time playing a coach. Obviously, that's something we'll return to <laughs> in the future. Fox approaches a very talented cinematographer by the name of Michael Chapman to direct this film. He's born in New York City in 1935, and he gets his start in the industry as a camera operator. He works with Coppola on The Godfather. He works on Jaws with Spielberg as a camera. 
He then becomes a cinematographer. He works with Scorsese on Taxi Driver and on Raging Bull. Around the time that he directs All the Right Moves, he's also working as a cinematographer for Carl Reiner on the Steve Martin comedies Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid and The Man with Two Brains. He directs two movies in Hollywood, All the Right Moves here in 1983, and the adaptation of Clan of the Cave Bear, starring Daryl Hannah in 1986. I don't know that one. It's an adaptation of a fantasy historical series, a very beloved fantasy historical series about cavemen, basically. Okay, wow. (laughs) I've heard good things about that film, but I've never seen it. No. He then returns to working as a cinematographer. He basically gives up directing at that point, returns to being a cinematographer, and works on, deep breath, Scrooged for Richard Donner. Uh, Sure. Ghostbusters 2 and Kindergarten Cop for Ivan Reitman. (laughs) The music video for Michael Jackson's Bad, again with Scorsese. Did you know that Scorsese directed the music video for Bad? He did. No, I did not. He works on one of my favorite films, Doc Hollywood with Michael Caton Jones, which is such a terrific movie and so glowy and beautiful. I'm not at all surprised that he was a cinematographer. You've been telling me about that movie since we got together. I still haven't seen it. (laughs) Patreon exclusive. Check it out. (laughs) I will find an excuse to put. You know what? That might be it, actually, for all the right moves. We can go and look. We'll just go do Doc Hollywood. Wow. I was thinking Rudy, but okay. I'm down for Doc Hollywood. We'll see when we get to the end of the month. We need to balance these things so carefully, so carefully. (laughs) (laughs) He also shoots uh, The Fugitive for director Andrew David and works on Joe Pitka's seminal, unstoppable 1996 juggernaut, Space Jam. I would like to invite (laughs) you to come on and slam. Be welcomed here onto the jam. He's also married, Michael Chapman, to Amy Holden Jones, a screenwriter most well known for adapting the script for Indecent Proposal from the Jack Englehart novel of the same name. Indecent Proposal. Yes, I just watched that one again, actually, because I love Robert Redford so much. I'm not sure that it hangs together, but it's an interesting one. Another film that kind of reaches its midpoint and kind of runs out of story. Yeah. We've kind of burned our premise. It limps towards the finish line for sure. Chapman, unfortunately, died in September of 2020 at the age of 84, but leaves behind him Mm -hmm. a legacy of some really incredible cinematography through the years. All the Right Moves shoots, as we mentioned, in Johnstown, Pennsylvania in the spring of 1983, right as The Outsiders is hitting movie theaters and losing it is also, to some extent, (laughs) hitting movie theaters, (laughs) I suppose. At the time of the shoot, the unemployment rate in Johnstown, Pennsylvania is 26%. Damn. We shoot at the former campus of the Greater Johnstown High School and Point Stadium, which is also in the town. All of these are just real places right there Mm -hmm. in Johnstown. I love the fictional name of the town, too. Ampipe. It's like so on the nose, but I kind of am into it. Yes. It's not unusual for these company towns, particularly in the industrialized Northeast, to bear the name, some kind of contraction or alteration, or sometimes even a pun on the names of their host companies. We don't really have time to get into the whole Mm -hmm. elevated history of that here. But if you're interested, go and look it up. It's frankly terrible. It's terrible and scathing and heartbreaking. And almost none of these communities pivoted out of being company towns around the time that their industries died. God, yeah. Cruz is cast early in the film. Then Leah Thompson is cast as Lisa. Thompson is born in 1961, so she's a year older than Cruz, despite looking like Leah Thompson, again, yeah. who just does not age. Immortal, yes. absolutely. She's born in Rochester, Minnesota. She starts ballet classes when she is very young. By the age of 14, is dancing professionally. By 20, she's dancing with the American Ballet Theater, where she meets Mikhail Baryshnikov, who tells her, quote, you're a lovely dancer, but you're too stocky. Wow. Well, fuck you, Mikhail Baryshnikov. Except, this is the thing about Leah Thompson, she treats that very generously. She now describes it as her epiphany. 
Uh She leaves immediately and goes to New York to become an actor. That is interesting. You know, it's funny because I saw her not too terribly long ago, within the last decade, I think, on Dancing with the Stars. And she was fucking phenomenal. She She was was so great. (laughs) So that makes sense now. And so cute. It was this Bonnie and Clyde homage. Oh, my God. Adorable. I'll see if I can track that down on YouTube and drop a link to that in the show notes. (laughs) Mostly for my own edification, quite frankly. So she goes to New York. She gets a couple of commercials almost immediately, then moves out to L.A. and begins working in film. Her first role is Jaws 3D, which she shoots over the summer of 1982. This is her second film. She's already so poised and capable and Mm. glowy on screen. I just think that she is lovely. She's obviously one of my all-time favorites. Mm. I think she's just terrific. She's so terrific in this. So Thompson will go on from here to appear in a number of rather popular films. Uh, Red Dawn, Space Camp, Some Kind of Wonderful, Howard the Duck, 97 episodes of Caroline in the City in the mid to late 90s. That's the one that is also part of that Friends Mad About You shared universe that no one ever remembers. Oh, yeah. (laughs) God, that's wild. She will appear in three episodes as the ex-wife of Tom Cavanaugh's Ed in the TV show Ed. Oh my God, what a great show that's impossible to find. Fantastic show. This yeah. is a little PSA here. Ed starring Tom Cavanaugh, an excellent show, almost impossible to find because of music licensing issues. So stupid. If you ever get a chance to track it down, do so. Yeah. It's tremendous. Fantastic. In that show, by the way, she appears as someone with the very unlikely name of Liz Stevens. <laughs> Imagine. (laughs) Thompson also appears in the fifth episode of the second season of Picard and directs two episodes of that season. So what really might be just my all time small screen crush. Yeah, I think that's completely fair. Is it funny that I've made it through her entire filmography without mentioning Back to the Future? It is funny. Yeah. Yeah. Also, she's in the best film ever made. Your very, very favorite film. (laughs) It's definitely up there. It's definitely top three, (laughs) right? Thank you for saying felt like kissing my brother. <laughs> I could spend 20 minutes talking about the genius of that moment mm. and how far it goes to undo all of the edible complexity mm. of that entire film, right? A film with a weird premise. Yeah, totally. That line, her performance in that moment somehow makes it all completely okay from the first to the last. It is just all completely okay because the line is so good and she is so perfect. She's so perfect. That film absolutely sings because of her. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's fair. Thompson was hesitant to sign up for this film, though, because she didn't want to do roles that involved nudity. Mm. In 2018, she gave an interview to IndieWire and said, quote, The producers wanted me to show my breasts twice in the script. I didn't even audition because I didn't want to take my shirt off. But then I got cast in the part without auditioning and was like, okay. Cruz liked Thompson for the role immediately and went to the producers asking that one of the nude scenes be cut. This is the makeout scene in the car. He went to the producers and asked that they amend it so that she would not be naked in that scene. And then said, if she's going to be naked in the scene where they eventually have sex, that he would be naked too to make her feel more comfortable. That's... Real nice allyship, actually. Thompson says, quote, that's pretty badass. I've always been grateful to him for standing up to the producers. Yeah. Wow. And this is before he's anybody. That's a hard thing to do. Well, that's the thing. He is just now becoming somebody. They are really shooting this as The Outsiders is coming out. And there's already buzz around this this terrific new talent. What a great way to use what power you have. I hate that. Anyway, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we're going to have some other things to talk about (laughs) as we move forward through his filmography. He started as such a sweetie pie. Okay. 
Leah Thompson, as part of the pre-production for this film, was enrolled as a new student at Ferndale Area High School in Pennsylvania for three days just to help her get a feel for the culture, yeah, for the area, for the really accent. Although she really doesn't end up doing an accent at all. I don't recognize any accent work it's really just in her this voice. film. No, yeah. there's not a lot for yeah. sure. She says that several guys asked her out while she was attending I'll this school. Bet that's hilarious. The reason that she dropped the charade is that she was caught smoking outside and was going to be in big trouble. <laughs> At which point she said, no, 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 I'm an actor. I'm 21. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Cruz tried the same thing at a different high school uh -huh. and was recognized within the hour. Immediately. Oh, that's great. <laughs> what a great story. We also need to talk about Craig T. Nelson, of course. He's born in 1944 in Spokane, Washington. He bounces around a couple of different colleges. He finds a passion for acting, but not so much for academics. He finally drops out of the University of Arizona to move to L.A. to begin his career. He weirdly kind of stumbles into being a stand-up comedian. He starts working with what? the Groundlings. I'm sorry. <laughs> Craig D. Nelson as a stand-up comic? He's really quite successful at it, in fact. That is shocking to he me. I don't know why. after okay. a few years, just because, uh, quote, the stand-up comedy life was pretty unfulfilling for me. Okay. He then, having seen the bright lights of L.A., having had this experience, having mm. done quite well in his chosen profession, leaves. He takes five years away. He moves to the town of Montgomery Creek, California, in which there is no electricity and there is no running water. I'm sorry. Uh -huh. He goes to this town. He works as a janitor, a carpenter, a surveyor, and a high school teacher. Is Craig T. Nelson the sexiest man alive? Certainly what are you maybe even the most interesting about? man in the world, right? What? After five years, hot. he goes back to L.A. and is like, yes, I'm ready to be an actor now. Oh, my God. That's <laughs> At the age awesome. of 30. At the age of 30. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's such a cool story. He gets some immediate traction in movies, including Stir Crazy and Private Benjamin, and weirdly, mm -hmm. the short-lived Private Benjamin TV show, which I didn't know existed and certainly no. didn't know that there was any crossover with the film there. But of course, he is best known for being Coach. Mm -hmm. He films 198 episodes of that show before it ends in 1997, and then goes on to be the voice of Bob Parr in Brad Bird's fantastic animated movies, The Incredibles. I had actually forgotten that. He's Mr. Incredible and is so good yeah. in those films. It, it is an absolutely astonishing performance up against or alongside real heavy hitter voice actors throughout. Including a favorite of yours. Well, look, <laughs> Holly Hunter is a very special place in my heart, obviously. <laughs> More importantly, I'm thinking that we should do uh, Mr. Incredible and Elastigirl for next Halloween. <laughs> That's pretty great. That's pretty great. I can see it. Yep. That's <laughs> patreon.com slash laststarpod. <laughs> or maybe we'll start an OnlyFans. I don't know. <laughs> Weirdest OnlyFans ever. I, I promise Mr. you it's Incredible not. I bet it's not. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. We should also take a moment to talk about a somewhat sadder story and, and to talk mm. a little about, I think, your favorite actor in this film, right? Chris Penn plays Brian. Oh, he was such a surprise. Yes. So genuinely yeah. lovely. In I made this a film. note of him that he was just really delivering in, yeah. in this um, lower tier part. Penn is born in 1965, five years after his brother, Sean, who obviously we saw in Taps, and mm -hmm. who is at this point real life friends with Tom Cruise. Right. 
Penn was a child actor in the 1970s. He then appears, because again, it is the smallest industry in the world. Mm -hmm. He appears in Francis Ford Coppola's Rumblefish. Oh, of course. And goes on after this film to appear in Footloose, Reservoir Dogs, True Romance, Rush Hour, Kiss Kiss, Bang Bang, a host of other films. Unfortunately, Chris Penn died in 2006 at the age of 40 as a result of heart disease. Oh, that is dreadful. Very well spoken of by critics and fellow actors Mm. alike. He's lovely in this. He really is. Isn't he? Yeah. Yeah. He's giving something so tragic and vulnerable and human. And you can see him lying to himself. Yeah. It's a beautiful and nuanced performance. be aware that he is lying to himself. Yes. He's playing both sides of it. Oh, my God. And doing so with so little dialogue relative to the rest of the film. Yeah. That's a gorgeous and tragic scene. A knockout, knockout performance by this young man. Mm. And it's interesting, too, that he is in many ways functioning like the protagonist of a slightly different version. Totally. A more naturalistic, tragic version of this film. Yeah. He's in his version of this movie right over there. And we get to yeah. comment on it via staff. Yeah, that's very true and interesting. It's This would have made a fascinating TV series, I think, because it had so many characters to follow that I wanted to know more about. Like, I wanted to know more about Shadow. Definitely more about Brian, who is the Chris yeah. Penn character. Uh, more about Lisa, who was so terrific. So much more about Lisa, please. Yes, yes. What is Lisa's home life? Yeah, who knows? We, we they don't didn't give her get enough. a moment of it. They didn't give her enough yeah. at all. I was also interested in the guy who owns the bar, who breaks that up the guy, fight. The most bartender? So cool. We're going to get to him because yeah. he's in, in a one-scene appearance. It's right. so incredible. There were interesting things happening here. And I just love those like small-town series we yeah. talked about ed earlier yeah. as another one much quirkier of course sure. but um yeah and that kind of like northern exposure which i've also never seen but anyway anytime you get these like small set aside towns and these people who are in in one sense stuck but in another sense have like taken on a certain responsibility within their communities yeah. i find fascinating one of the things that i really like about this film which i think is both so brave so ambitious and so well executed is that we do not fall into the easy trap of romanticizing this town, of romanticizing no. this community. At no point is there like a moment of great self-sacrifice where the community bands together to pay for Steph's bus ticket out of town right. or whatever we're going to do with him. Yeah, you know? that's a good point. It is mean-spirited. It is desperate because these people are desperate. Yeah. What did you think about Craig T. Nelson's speech in the locker room about the ethnic diversity of the team and yep. the culture the team came from. Uh, I could have used it without the slurs. I, exactly. Although... But there's also the sense that I don't know how true it is. I don't know how real it is. There is a recurring element to this film where it's usually Craig T. Nelson will give a speech in which he is telling this town the story of itself. He's yes. telling this team the story of itself. But I'm not sure that those stories are true are real he has that speech at the pep rally where he's talking about the rival town walnut heights and Uh he's talking about how they have golf clubs for boys and girls and it's he's depicting this incredible paradise this this utopian idyll where everyone is wealthy and upper class and then when we go there it's a slightly less shitty pennsylvania town oh no i disagree as soon as we pulled into that high school i was like shit that high school looks hot for today's standards I don't know. I have to disagree with you on that. That was like... I don't know. We're looking very much... I didn't see the whole town, though. I just saw the school. We only get a couple of establishing shots as we're coming in on the bus. Mm -hmm. And we're deep in the POV of the boys. But it is... 
wet tarmac and giant parking lots and strip malls. Oh, and then, sure. Yes, a high school that is certainly nicer than the high school yeah. that we're dealing with. No, that's fair. But it's not like incredibly glamorous. It's, this right. is not a slobs versus snobs comedy kind of setup here. To me, it just communicated that this other town, for whatever reasons that are often unfair, just had more resources. And anytime you have more resources, you have more opportunity. And anyone who says otherwise has not lived in the world. It's that this other town is not a company town. Uh, we see strip malls with businesses mm-hmm. and then it's not mm-hmm. just unified around this single right. steel plant. You work at the mill or you exactly you work at the work mill at or all. or you work in the immediate support infrastructure around the mill. Right. And the grocery store, it. the bar. Yeah. yeah. So the film does a lot to hit those beats, to to replay those tropes, even cliches about small town football and about how important high school football can be to these communities that it's a religion we see right. the bleachers are packed the high school auditorium is packed but i don't think that the film ever steps into that fantasy i don't think that the film ever presents that as being yeah. really true objectively true it doesn't present football as being really important it presents it as being an escape it presents mm. it as being a release valve yes did that work for you did you see that in the same way and do you find that convincing yeah uh again it's just so perfectly portrayed in friday night lights that anytime i see it elsewhere it falls a little bit flat and i think here it did as well like the opening sequences in the in the first season of friday night lights where you're driving through the town on game day and everything is closed and boarded up because everyone in that town is at the game i don't think we got that same weight put on to the football game in this film, they, you're right, they spoke about it, but we didn't see it in the same way. Yes, that, yeah. that's kind of what I'm talking about. The thing yeah. about Friday Night Lights is that it presents this religion as a religion and then within the text of the film recognizes it as such. Absolutely. Too. Yeah. And here we're doing this like half measure where the town talks the talk, but does not necessarily walk the walk. Uh, in a way that I find yeah. really interesting. Yeah, I mean, we get the guy. Is it Roscoe? Who's the, who's the Bosco? Bosco. Yeah. yeah. So Bosco, the guy who uh, vandalizes Coach's house after they lose the game, which was in fact Coach's fault. He should have taken a safety. I'm glad that he admitted that because <laughs> even I, who know nothing about football, <laughs> was like, "Hold on to the ball, you idiot! Don't do that." <laughs> I don't know that much about football either, but I gotta tell you. That is a transparently bad play. Right? Yeah. Right? It's so transparently bad that it does kind of undermine what comes after it. I wish well, that they had Well, then he gets had... hired. <laughs> You're like, who hired you? <laughs> Definitely that, yeah. I wish that they had had some consultant come in and say, no, this is maybe a little more real. Because we're right. not leaning into it as like an exercise in vanity, right? We're not leaning into it as, as an exercise or in hubris. arrogance. Or yeah. desperation to mm-hmm. play on that major theme that keeps recurring through yes. this film. It's just a mistake. Yeah. And I wish that we had either anchored that in character. It's the kind of mistake that this guy, that guys like this always make. He's trying to be flashy. He's trying to be showy. He's looking for glamour. He wants to be the hometown hero. Right. Whatever it is. But we just don't do that. We don't give it enough time. Yeah. Even if that was his motivation. Commonplace quotidian kind of mistake. Yeah. I think it might have been supposed to be implied that it was going to be showy, that he was going for more points instead of just holding on. That kind of takes us to the big problem, I think, with this film, a film that I really do quite like, but, and I like Craig T. Nelson's performance in Mm -hmm. general, but he has some real trouble maintaining a specific tone. Yes. He is giving, in certain scenes, a very comedic performance. Yeah, it's a coach. (laughs) Yeah. And then in other scenes, a very straight dramatic performance, Mm -hmm. in which I think he's also very, very good, but trying to mediate between those two things, particularly when the entire back half of this film rests upon him being this 
immovable hard ass. Yeah. I don't think that really any of the comedic moments in the film work. Can we talk for a second about the erection joke? Uh, if we have to. Can I we talk like about my we... least favorite character in this film? Oh, my God. Yeah. You, you'll notice when I said that I wanted to hear about all of these other characters. <laughs> Salvucci, or whatever his name That's is. That's enough from Vooch, you, Vinny. Did not Vooch come up. So good, like, whatever. <laughs> Get him out of here. He sucks. Uh, so, yeah. Didn't like that guy. But I was so sure that that was, a, like, the whole thing was going to be that it was a weird you, you know, that, that some trick that he always played with his knee or something. Nope. But apparently, no, he's just got an enormous erection that is lifting the desk up. And then Tom Cruise just slams the desk right down on it. And damn, that's so much time wasted in So this much film. time in a 19-minute film. Yes. And also a gross sexual joke at the expense of this young woman. Well, except that she seems She's, to be into it. Well, and also not paying attention. But okay, yes. But also, I, I'm talking about, I suppose... The writing of it, yes, not yes. the actual execution of the joke. The specificity of making this young woman kind of into this, you know, at least amused by this display yes. is also gross against yes. all young and women. And a fault of the writing. That yes, young woman, yes. Right? exactly. Ugh. One more thing before we get into what is sure to be the shortest beat by beat description of a film that we're ever going to do in this podcast. Mm-hmm. We need to talk about that opening song. We talked about all the opening songs in the first five Tom Cruise sure. movies. Well, this one's a little bit special, at least. This is All the Right Moves, sung by Jennifer Warnes and Chris Thompson. Jennifer Warnes, you know. I do? Yes, because Jennifer Warnes duets with Bill Medley on I've Had the Time of My Life from Dirty Dancing. Oh, cool. Also with Joe Cocker on Up Where We Belong, which is also Also a hell of a song. Yeah, Yeah. no hell of a song. Uh, I don't like this song. I don't like any of the music in this film. I thought it was so weird that when we cut to the credits, the first thing we do is all of the songs. And I'm like... Wow, you're proud of this, huh? Okay, agree. Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. (laughs) As we may have mentioned last week, to some extent or other, uh, 80s music is terrible. It's terrible. And and this is the worst kind of 80s music, I would say. Yeah. Next week, when we discuss Ridley Scott's Legend, you'll be very pleased to hear that when we watch the theatrical cut of that film, Mm -hmm. we're back with Tangerine Dream. I thought so. (laughs) I thought so. I couldn't think. I was just thinking about this yesterday. Like, as I was doing my makeup, I was thinking about Tangerine Dream. I was like, Aren't they also the ones that did the music on Legend? But I just couldn't be sure. I'm the so theatrical cut of Legend, yes. Ridley Scott wanted an entirely different score, but the studio took it away from him and made ah. the Tangerine soundtrack, uh, the Tangerine Dream soundtrack happen. That's so interesting. Yeah, we'll talk about that next week on The Last Star in Hollywood. Ridley Scott's 1985 <laughs> Legend. I'm so excited for it. <laughs> Even though I fear it's going to be very bad. I have good memories of it, though. So as I said, our journey through the specifics of this film is probably going to be a little lighter and faster than normal because the truth is there's just not a lot of film here. And what happens usually takes a long time to play out. Mm. We're introduced up front to Steph, a high schooler who lives with his father and his brother and is something of a local celebrity because of high school football here in this benighted little company town, as you said, in western Pennsylvania. Steph gets a ride to school. He meets up with his girlfriend, Lisa, and buddy, Brian, in... Typing class? Typing class Typing class. We are also introduced to Steph's friend, Vinny. We also get to see, though, during this whole sequence with Vinny, that Coach Nickerson is concerned about Steph, that he is worried about Steph and his misadventures. He's got that look on his face the whole time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We learn that the upcoming game against Walnut Heights, specifically, is Steph's shot at getting into college. Not just him, all of these players. Right. This is your way out. The scouts are going to be there, I guess. Yes, exactly. Mm Mm-hmm. 
we get in the locker room the scene that Brian is going to the University of California, and then we dance to the celebrate. Dance is fun. It's ten minutes. It's a lot. I wanted. I it's again. Two I minutes, thought there was going to be more so later. Long. It's weird that there's not more later because now it stands out as odd. But yes. From there, we cut out for the first time to the football field, this gladiatorial arena of mud and grass, where we are going to spend a lot of time in the middle part of this film, at least. We see Nickerson as a coach. He's driving these boys hard. We're talking about the scouts already. In fact, we see that the scouts are there, but not for the players, for Nickerson himself. Oh, yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. he is also being scouted as his way of getting out. I think in this opening scene that Craig T. Nelson is extremely good. Fair enough. He never <laughs> wowed me. He just didn't wow me in this, okay. but I didn't hate him either. He's no Kyle Chandler. Uh, who amongst us? <laughs> After practice, we cut to Steph's house where he and his father are sitting down with a college recruiter. I love that Steph is realistic about his ambition, realistic about his hopes. He knows he's Very. not going to make it in the NFL. He does describe himself as 5'10", which... Kind okay, of hilarious. Tom. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And he's like, no one wants a 5'10 white guy. I'm like, let's not pretend that yeah. being white is going to put you on the back foot, sir. Yes. Let's not. In the NFL in particular. Right. Yes. Yeah. But it's so, he is so smart. It, mm -hmm. it would be so easy to make staff just dumb, to just make him yes. two dimensional. Yes. But the fact that he wants an education because he wants to be an engineer. He has this drive within him. He has yeah. this desire within him. And I love that we then see sketches in his room where so he's great. actually really doing it, wanting yeah. to be an engineer, not just like talking about it, but doing the work and, and dreaming. So we maybe set up something of a hubristic fall for Steph here where he tells the recruiter, he basically puts the recruiter on hold because he's yes. waiting for a better school, which is okay, kid. <laughs> yeah, but importantly, not a better football team, a better engineering program. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I liked that. Steph and Lisa go make out in her car overlooking the romantic lights of the steel mill, but he takes it too far and is then kind of a pouty baby when she tells Such him to stop. A dick. He's yeah. the worst in this scene. It was really uncomfortable to watch. I like that what makes him awful in that moment, and he is awful in that moment, is in his performance rather than being in the script. We don't do the cliched version of that scene. Sure. Where or, or she kind of says, I know what you're thinking, but he doesn't say yeah, exactly, that himself. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He is, he is playing all of the frustration without saying it, but she says stop lots of times and he doesn't stop. So I hate it. it is, you just can't yes. get away from that. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. You can't get away from it. Yeah. And then it's interesting because she says that she basically does want to sleep with him, but she wants it to be special. She doesn't want to be here and gross in the car. And she doesn't want to be about, because he says something about how my friends all know that I'm here. And if they think that I'm not getting any action or something, which is so yes. gross. When I said the grossness was not in the script, I wasn't thinking of that yeah. one. Yeah. You're completely right. It is. That is, that is disgusting. Yeah. Yes. No, it was gross. Yeah. It was terrible. We're also not. I'm not convinced that he ever recovers from that as a character. <laughs> I have to say. I can see that. Yeah. yeah. We're not really talking about it this film will allow a little space for subtext so we're not really talking about the fact that she is a junior she knows that he wants to go to college so she is already preparing herself to be left alone that's she's true. already preparing herself for this guy to go and that's clearly giving a certain dimensionality especially yeah. alongside brian's storyline too right it's clearly giving a little dimensionality to their relationship she wants this she wants him she loves him but she is also having to be protective of her own future. Yes. Yeah. It's lovely. She's a great character. And his future, too, because she doesn't want to, you know, trap him in yeah. this town by getting pregnant. Mm -hmm. We move through another training sequence out there on the football field. And then we get the pep rally that we discussed before. We see the 
the passion and the fervor. We get the introduction from uh, Bosco. Here's the man who's going to bring us victory and make Ampipe what it used to be. That is what I'm talking about. Yeah. That is the mythologizing of this town, and it's the mythologizing of what football can do. Nothing is going to make Ampipe what it used to be. This is a town that is dying. It's dying. not even just surviving, yeah. as we see later when Greg gets laid off, along with 700 other workers. 700 workers and a populate the town population has to be what? If it's 10,000, I would be I was going to say, yeah. yeah, a few thousand was going to be my guess. Yeah. Absolutely. That's horrifying. But this, this myth of football and what it can do extended out to this myth of our community and what we right. can do. It's potent stuff. Like it's used by awful politicians all the, all time, the time, right? Mm -hmm. It's used by people with very nefarious intents. But here we see it being used as a survival mechanism yeah. almost. But even in that moment, we get the sense that they don't really believe it. Sure. Yeah. It's a like last straw to hang on to. Yeah. yeah. Last hope. We get this lovely sequence where Nickerson addresses the crowd while Brian takes Steph aside and tells him that his girlfriend is pregnant. And all through that performance, we never say it outright, but all through that performance is the realization that his hope of leaving town has gone. It has yeah. just disappeared. It happened all at once because he is a good man. Yes. Because he is not going to leave this young woman to deal with this baby by herself. Right. He yeah. is not going to cut and run. We have that great moment where, uh, where Steph asks if she could have an abortion. And the response is just, well, you know how she feels about that. Which is... So enlightened yeah. and good Just and decent. End. Yep. End of conversation. And that's the end yep. of it. That's it. Mm -hmm. I love that. Yeah. No, it's true. Although there's a lot of religion in the town too. A lot of Catholicism. Lots of crucifixes people are carrying and rosaries that people are carrying. And there's, so I don't love Catholic guilt either. Yeah. But, but that's interesting. There's the iconicity of Catholicism. Mm -hmm. But I don't feel it. No. In, it's odd. In the fabric of the story. You know? Yeah. I, yeah. The closest we get is Brian praying the rosary. When he's on the bus going to Walnut Heights. Yeah. I mean, to, to the extent that there is guilt and there is desperation, there is religion. <laughs> yes, sure. much sure. outside of that. As I said, on the bus to the game, we see Brian praying just in tears while everyone else is looking haunted and, and yeah. under pressure, looking out the windows of this, this bus on this gray, gray day. We get the inspirational speech from Nickerson, though, again, we can still feel all of that desperation. The mm -hmm. whole town rises or falls with victory as well as every person in that room, except not really. Some of you might just be able to parlay this fleeting victory into a chance, a chance. to get out. Yeah. And this, as you said, is where we end with that language about being outsiders, about being yes. immigrant stock. We conclude with the slurs that we could live without. Right. Although I do understand like wanting to have that pointedness Sure, and there's a great... In order to like prove yourself as yes. more, like I understand how he's using it, but I still don't like well, it. And that tradition of using, that tradition in minority communities, Absolutely. of using the language that is, is wielded against you and, and subverting it to your own purpose yeah. and as a badge of identity and belonging. Absolutely. It's really interesting. Mm -hmm. The game begins, and though the Bulldogs are looking strong, the Walnut Height Knights take their first touchdown. The Bulldogs even it up by the half, and in the second half, Steph scores a touchdown with this absolutely gorgeous 10-second tracking shot of Cruz booking it down the field. Yeah. There is real contact. There is there's real football happening. It's gorgeously choreographed. It really it's is. Stunning. And also not so cinematic that it doesn't look like football anymore or it looks like pro football. Like this yeah. looks like a bunch of kids on a pretty good team playing. Yeah. You know Which what I mean? Which is sometimes where Friday Night Lights are our constant point of comparison yes. in this episode does falter a little bit. Yeah. We're like, okay, it's not the Dallas Cowboys. Let's be realistic. Yeah. <laughs> I think that football is a uniquely cinematic sport too mm. because of its different 
visual modalities because of the different sure. ways that you interact with space. Yeah, you're, you're down and you're crouching, and you're, you're up down in the air and with you're the ball. tight. Exactly. You're, yeah, you're, yeah. You're, you're, you're running you're in static. open spaces. You're crashing into each other. All of that dynamism, I think, yes. makes for a very a very cinematic sport. Yeah, and it's really realized beautifully in this film. Go back and watch that tracking shot. It is just a knockout. <laughs> And then we get this brilliant moment where as he is celebrating his touchdown, the rain begins to fall. Yeah. How is this game not rained out? It becomes an absolute swimming pool. I've got to tell you, this is happening at the midpoint of the film. Uh And I was waiting for it to be rained out. I was like, why are we having this game now? Everyone knows that in sports movies, the big game is the last thing that happens. Right. But this is about to stop being a sports movie. Yep. Like completely. Yeah. Yeah. So I was waiting for it to be rained out. And actually, we're going to reschedule to next weekend. Right. And that's going to be the end of the film. Makes sense. No. And clearly, that rain is just really falling. Because we get huge wide shots of the whole field. We get huge wide shots of the whole stand. Yeah. Everybody with umbrellas. Yeah. I can't believe that a movie with a $6 million budget in Pennsylvania is using rain machines to make that happen. I have I think no it's idea. probably just rain. I don't know. That's so much rain. There was so, so much, much water on that, on that field at the end. I don't know. Interesting. The Bulldogs are now playing a desperate defense. Finally, the Knights are on fourth and goal with 12 seconds left Mm -hmm. on the clock, but the defense holds. The Bulldogs take possession. They've basically won the game, but then in this slow motion brawl, Mm -hmm. they lose possession of the ball. The Knights score a touchdown. It's kind of hard to follow visually on screen what is happening in that moment. But not least of all, because all of the players are just caked in mud. Well, and I also just knew it was going to happen. Like as soon as he said that they were going to try and carry the ball. I was like, oh, no, you're not. You're going to fumble it, and then they're going to recover it, and then you just blew it, sir. Yep, they lose the game 16 to 14. In the locker room, Nickerson blames Vinny for failing the team. Steph steps up to defend him. Nickerson kicks Steph off the team. This all happens very quickly. I have to say, Steph's argument is interesting in that it's so wrong. (laughs) Because he's like, I don't care what the scoreboard says. We won. And I'm like, that's not how sports work, though, Bubby. But you know who agrees with him is Coach Taylor. Okay. There's an emotional win. This is the inspirational emotion. Yeah, Yeah, that's what it is. That's the moment right there. That's the argument that he's making is for the iconic power of sport. Yeah. No, no, this idea, like, we have nothing to be ashamed of. We were winners tonight. That's different from we won this game. Like, well, you didn't win the game. But I hear what you're saying. And when Nickerson comes in and really starts going after Vinny, who is already in tears... Yeah, that was shitty. That's that's a bad moment. Like yeah. nobody comes out of that looking nope. good. Yeah. And that is one of the other interesting things about the film is that no one is perfect. Like even Lisa is not perfect. She's like I said, she she stands up for herself, but then ultimately it's just like, oh, but I love him and right back together with the guy. And there's something oh. quite tragic about that too. No, I think I disagree. Oh. I think that I think that Lisa is genuinely very underserved by the script, yes. Yeah. But I think that balancing of I love him. But I have to be a realist. But I love him. No, I am really again just talking about she. She just absolves him of too much. I think we have this great sequence where we transition to the bar where the locals are all chewing over the events of the evening and all you know blaming Nickerson and the guy's mm-hmm. an asshole. <laughs> all of this. It, cut, it is at least known that it's his fault. That's yeah, good. Yeah. yeah. We cut to uh, Steph's dad and brother who are sitting at the bar. And his dad's being all, you know, wise and good. And, you know, yeah. he just needs to, I don't know what he said, but he just needs to apologize. And, you know, he can still get his shot and everything's going to work out for the best. And then the guy sitting next to him <laughs> blames Steph for losing the game. And without a moment of hesitation, his dad just punches him in the face. Yes. Puts on his coat and walks out. It's a really weird comedic beat. It's 
I don't think that they did play it for comedy. I think that's why it it it, it was a sour note for me because it seemed to me just like glorifying violence. It's a very masculine film anyway. But Greg is the brother, right? Yeah. Greg seemed so just like proud of his pop in that moment that, you know, oh, what a man of honor. He just took out that guy for saying something about his son. And it just, to me, seemed a little bit Philistine. Is that how it's? Yeah. (laughs) No, I I think you're right. And I think there are certainly elements to that. Mm. I think elements of that in this film... We talked last week when we were discussing Risky Business about one of the elements of noir that we see, and noir heroes in particular, is that they are, in theory, good men who have been brought low by their circumstances. Mm -hmm. And that is true of everyone in Ampipe, right? That is true of everyone in this town. The world has failed them. The world is corrupt and unfair. And they are now products of that system. And part of that system is this kind of swaggering macho bullshit yeah. right is it is part of this like very masculine very overt and performative masculine identity that mm-hmm. we see throughout the film these are steel workers these are you know hard hitting hard drinking guys and it seems as though his dad is not exempt from that yeah. he wants better right this is oftentimes the the dynamic that we see in a noir between the hero and the good girl the mm. the, the, the ingenue that will be saved by the hero's efforts the hero cannot save himself in right. noir fiction but he will save the good girl and he will do so by getting her out. It's too late for him, but mm-hmm. he can protect her. And that's very much the dynamic that I see here between Steph's dad and Steph. Hmm. That's interesting. I like that as a read. It's also entirely possible that it could just be a misplayed comedic moment. Because again, yeah. this movie's having a little bit of trouble keeping the reins keeping on its tone. Keeping the tone. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's a point. So from there, we move to Steph getting aggressively drunk in the back of a pickup. And then yeah. thumbing a ride with Bosco and the other guys who take him to Nickerson's house. All of whom are way too drunk to be behind the wheel of a Very car. drunk. And, yeah. and grown men, many yeah. of them, right? Yes, yes, grown men. I think there are a couple of other Letterman jackets that you can see mm, in that set, maybe? I don't recall, yeah. Maybe Stephanie's the only think one, so, in which case it's no, even more No, everybody else was on the bus, remember? <laughs> That's he true. got kicked That's off true. the bus. Yeah. He was the only football player You're who right. was there because now he's off the team. So we go to Nickerson's house and we vandalize his car and house itself and the yard. And also find a rooster to kill and hang from the porch, I guess. Very when gross. did that happen? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. That's, that's bad news. Yeah. yeah. Maybe took it a little far. Nickerson comes out. Everyone else peels out in their cars, mm-hmm. leaving Steph just standing in the middle of the road. Not a great narrative moment, perhaps, no. but at least this is locking our conflict for what will be the rest of the film. We cut forward to the next day where Steph goes to Nickerson to apologize not for vandalizing his house because he doesn't realize that he has been identified. Which is wild. I don't know how he couldn't think. Like, you were just standing there, sir. Like, well, how he has do you been not know? drinking a lot by that point, so it's possible that his memories of that event no, are somewhat blurry yeah, themselves, yeah, although we don't ever reckon with that as mm-hmm. we move forward. He does apologize for his behavior in the locker room after the game, and Nickerson shuts him down completely. It's all over. It's all done. He's not going to get to play in the last game mm-hmm. of the season. And from there, things just get pretty consistently worse and worse and worse, albeit in a somewhat ramshackle manner, kind of without a great deal of motive agency leading us from one scene to the next. It's just a succession of things happen, including his reconciliation with Lisa. Mm -hmm. We didn't mention that as Steph is leaving the game, he yells at Lisa and demands some time alone in front of the bus full of people. She is mad about that, but we won't pick that up for two days in his timeline when we finally reconcile with her outside her house. Yeah. What do you think of that scene? I, this is another 
moment where it felt like a woman picked up the script and helped write, which is great. Uh, but it goes really fast, I think. Like, he does admit guilt and say that he's been an ass. Uh, but there, then he says, you know, what, what do you need from me or what can I do? And she says, you can be my friend. Yeah. And I think, oh, she broke up with him. That's awesome. That's everything about that scene right? says she just broke up with him. Except, Except that, that then he kisses her. Yes. And she's like, oh, I love you. And it's weird. It is weird, right? Yeah. It's weird. I, I don't I, I don't quite understand what they were doing there. It was so close to be. And I love the version of this where they break up. He is a true blue friend to her for a while. And then she forgives him and like gives him another chance. But that's not what happens here. They just kind of blow past it. Or if it happens, it happens in an eighth of a second. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So quickly. So I didn't love that. I really did want better for her. I'm again, I think seeing this material as being significantly elevated by Thompson. I think that she oh, is 100%. still capable of conveying so much complexity that yes, when the script falters and when the, the story is not giving her what she deserves and it doesn't give her what she deserves. Right. She is still finding something in it. Yeah. To bring an emotional realism to the scene. Yes. She's she's doing nice work in the same way that Chris Penn is and that you can see when she knows that she's doing something that is maybe not smart or right but that she can't help herself yeah i i think that we see that from her too like we see that her love for him makes her forgive things she ought not i think so yeah, yeah. and and she really does play the reality of that love very clearly i think yes so from here on it really is just string of pearls some things happen yeah. greg and the other 700 guys get laid off nickerson starts telling college recruiters that steph is bad news has a behavioral problem has him blackballed we get such Lisa showing up at Snap's house the night of the game. This is such a nice moment. This is a nice moment. That she this shows is up there. a great moment for Lisa. The night of the game, playing her saxophone on the street corner. Yeah. He invites her in, and she is clearly just very ready to have sex with him now. Yeah. I'm not sure how that is emotionally motivated. I mean, she's in the marching band. She's supposed to be there. Yep. Like, she's going to get in trouble in for not being at the game. She's incredibly dorky uniform. Yes, yes. I love how awkward the undressing is. Yeah. Um, yeah. And she, doesn't she say, I have a special outfit to show you? And yes. it's like long johns. Long johns. <laughs> That's so good. It was very cute. It was very cute. And when they both take their shirts off, I don't know if you noticed the guy girl shirt takeoff technique. I Do you know about this? No. What is okay. the guy girl shirt takeoff technique? <laughs> First of all, Welcome I don't know if to Masterclass. Called that. Oh, it is now. <laughs> there's there, there's a visual thing happening here. So, girls take off their shirts by crossing their arms down below, like across their belly, and then sure. you grab both sides of the shirt and then you lift up over your head. Right. And guys apparently do it by reaching behind themselves like a gorilla yeah. and pulling the nape of the shirt up over their heads. That's true. Why is it true? And is it because it's the best way to show off your tits? Is that the reason? <laughs> so your argument would be that the reason that women take off their shirts in this particular way is because you have been indoctrinated by years of film and television. Yes. Wow. Yes, that this is the tit reveal. I, can, I can't it is, even it is, imagine like, taking off a shirt any other way. it is a more now, tantalizing way of taking off the shirt, right? right? You're right. right? It, gives, it gives a slower reveal. There might be something. Which you're right, cinematically. Yeah. That's wild. Yeah. Look for it now. You'll see it all the time. I'm also thinking right now, like, I have long hair. Many women do. So maybe that's part of it. But even then, it's just, you know, you move to the side and then off you go. 
But I have never taken a shirt off by reaching up back behind my head and, and pulling at the nape of the neck, ever. You, you, you've blown my mind. Yeah. That's it. That's the rest of this podcast now. <laughs> what are the other differences? And the fact that that could, you're absolutely right, be introduced into the population just by cultural consensus. Oh, totally. Yeah. That's fascinating. Mm. I'm going to go do some research after this is over. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think of the sex scene? I don't remember having very strong feelings about it. It was, I guess it made me think about conversations we had back in Endless Love about just why are we a little bit obsessed as movie makers and moviegoers with people losing their virginity on screen? And then why do we show these young people naked in a way that is absolutely illegal in real life and criminal, obviously, but we all just accept, oh yeah, but they're 21 in real life, so it's fine. But it's still weird. Yeah, 22 still weird for Thompson to and 21 for Cruz here. Canonical teenagers have sex. It's weird. I find it culturally interesting. Like, I wonder what the reasons are. Like, does it have to well, do with I mean, this kind of... Purity culture coupled with our culture's Obsession idealization with youth of youth and, and idealization, beauty, yeah. yeah, and, and um, like people who feel like high school was like when they were at their peak physically, which is well, which absurd you know, high to school me. is oftentimes for for the vast majority of the population, I would dare to speculate, the point at which you reach sexual maturity. So sure. there is some like imprinting, I'm sure, that happens there that that you come of age sexually in a world in which you are surrounded by people who are in their late teens. So maybe the late teen body mm. becomes part of our beauty standard. Mm, that is interesting. But either way, you're completely right. You know, the way that we fetishize, in particular, the losing of virginity as an iconic moment, right? The, the whole discourse around virginity is so yeah. toxic and awful and oppressive anyway. Yeah, yeah. But the way that we like to render it as this perfect moment of of realized love, right? Just like endless right. love, here what we are doing is manifesting emotional love in the act of physical love. What I'm delighted by in this film is that it has no consequence whatsoever and does not play any further part in the proceedings. Yeah, yeah. And I do like, I, I think, again, it's so cool that he stipulated this and make it ha made it happen. But you get almost more Cruz nudity than you do uh, Leah yes. Thompson. He is also, it seems to me, in a lot of this scene, shielding her body with his. Yeah. In a way that makes the cinematography a little awkward. Like, mm. the, it makes their blocking, I guess I should say, yeah, yeah. a little awkward. It feels perfunctory in this particular instance. Yeah, we don't need it. It's not particularly We don't need it in the movie. We certainly shot. don't need the nudity. Absolutely. No, it's horribly lit. Yeah. There is no reason, by the way, we mentioned Lucille Ball taking her name off of this film because of its R rating. There is no reason that this film needs to be R rated. No. None A couple of F-words and, yeah. and a nudity scene that we don't need. A two-second pass through the script yeah. could strip those out. Yeah. Absolutely. And Absolutely. I'm not sure that it would be in any way a weaker film. And certainly at this point, this is not no. being marketed as a sex comedy. This is not being marketed as something that is no, outrageous there, or titillating in that there way. There is something very gritty about it, very sure. realistic about it, that I could see why you might want it to have an R rating because it is adult in that way. Like, it's sad. It's a yeah. sad movie yeah. in a lot of ways. But, I, yeah, I, th I think I would have fought for PG-13 probably had it been me. There's just no reason to do that, especially no. if your actor is uncomfortable and doesn't want to. Just drop it. Particularly if emotionally what we want to do here is just have Steph and Lisa be back together. Yeah. Let's leave that unresolved in the makeup scene outside of her house. 
and have them now in this moment do the emotional reconnection yeah. rather than the physical Which connection. Which you can even do that, I think, with sex and not have the nudity. No, certainly, you're right. Yeah. But because we're dealing with teenagers, because we're dealing with a high school senior oh, and a high school yes, junior, yes. Like, let's just not even let's do that. Let's just not even talk about that. Let's sex. just make it yeah. emotionally intense. Yeah. They right? can, yes. Particularly yeah. not, you're right, in yeah. this exploitative way that we go to so often, or Absolutely. at least did back in the 80s. I honestly have no idea. I don't watch a lot of movies right now about teenagers falling in love. Yeah. So I don't know how often we go to that well now. Days. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. We can move through the scene of Brian getting married, which is so lovely and heartbreaking. It's and so devastating because it reads like a funeral. It does. That's and he's trying. so smart. He's trying to bring joy. He's trying to express joy and obviously feels joy. Of course. But also can hear that door closing. Yeah. It's really oh. terrific. Yeah, it's lovely. There's something about the women pulling the like food and casseroles out of the car. That feels so, like a wake. It yeah. feels like a wake. And also yeah. like so working class Midwestern. Oh, yeah. Like no, no one is catering this, yeah. you know? We get this weird scene with Vinny being arrested for committing armed robbery. Which I we guess. never hear anything else about, right? We don't know nope. where he does it, what it he has does. No weight in the proceedings whatsoever. Yeah. It's supposed to be, I guess, leverage against Nickerson to prove that Nickerson doesn't really care about his team. Right. But we're gonna do that up, with Steph me, but also much later. Help. Yeah. And he's going to mean it, and it's going to be that much more effective. I think that character should have been cut from the script. I think he's in a different movie, and that movie's not good. I think you're completely right. Yeah. I think it can just be cut from the film. Honestly, yeah. you could just edit around him, and it would be fine. You know what? That's true, too. He you could, could have shot it all and been like, this isn't working. in that locker room when yep. Steph steps up to defend totally him. Totally true. Even let him be the one who you know misses the play and Coach yells at. That's fine. He's just a kid. Yeah. That's almost more heartbreaking. Because when he's an asshole, you're like, well, I wish yep. I could feel bad that you're crying in the corner. <laughs> but actually... From there, we go to the bar where we have the showdown with Bosco. Steph Another tries to another masterclass in location. This is oh a my god, perfect yes. CD and cheap like bar. All the other locations, a real life bar that's yeah. really in this town. Looks like that it has looks like so many taverns in Wisconsin and small towns. Yeah, yeah, also looks like the bar attached to the American Legion where my grandparents played bingo. Yeah, right. Yeah, every small 100%. town has one of yeah. these, and only one of these. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Steph gets a bloody nose from Bosco, who refuses to tell the truth to Nickerson, though it's unclear at this point what that would do. Yeah, I think he just wants someone to say that it wasn't his idea and that he tried yeah. to stop it. But we're straight up confused in our storytelling here because it's unclear at what point Steph learns that he has been blackballed. He's behaving now as if he has learned that Nickerson is talking behind his back. Mm. But we're going to get a moment that feels like revelation after this. Yeah. And then yeah. he's going to call Nickerson out intentionally so it's sloppy in the back end this is another scene i think you could just lose this scene except that you have this incredible bartender yeah <laughs> vaulting over the bar with a blackjack in hand ready to throw down like this is a john cassavetes film and he's in harlem in the 70s this is unbelievable he's cool yeah he yeah. doesn't fit in this he film doesn't. like at all but i love him i like yeah yeah defender keeper of the peace defender of right? justice which yeah. of course you would be in a small town like you this would, again yeah. with all of that you know oh, yeah. barreling kind of, of, of manifesting masculinity mm -hmm. you'd need a louisville slugger or something back right? there yeah from there we cut out to lisa talking with mrs nickerson we talked about this scene earlier it, it is just lovely and fragile and delicate and you're right incomplete but mm. overall I'm really interested in the way that, that this explores feminine power. We've just seen the clash of masculine power in this town and yeah. how it gets nothing done and doesn't make anything better because it cannot compromise. And here we see this much gentler, much more feminine impulse. 
Yes. Which yeah, is, I, I can see you hesitate there, and that is kind of gross too. I understand well, like the so depiction tragic. of women it's as peacemakers such a is reductive. power. Yes, yeah. and so reductive. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't like it. Uh, I think Miss Nickerson especially is a terrible depiction of femininity. Just barely a character. Barely right? a character. Yeah. She's only there. She doesn't even have a first name. She's Mrs. Nickerson all the way through. And even when we're filling in backstory for her, it is all in terms of, oh, my first love. I was in love with a boy once. And the army took him. Yeah. yeah. It's gross. It's terrible. It's a big fail for me. I think I wrote something about how this conversation fails the Bechtel test, but good. You know, it's just awful. This is intercut with staff calling colleges and finding out that he's being rejected far and wide. And then we move from, you know, a scene that is underdeveloped, a scene that doesn't necessarily do what it ought to do. To one of my high points of the entire film, which is the scene of Staff crying in bed, and his father comes to him. Yes. This emotionally literate, yes, gorgeously depicted man who can sit with his son and kind of be in his feelings with his son. Yeah. In in just a very modern, lovely, empowering way. That was really beautiful. Yeah. It was very affectionate. Uh, you're right. Emotionally warm. Um. That was a lovely sequence. And, and to just tell him that he was proud of him, that his mom would have been proud too. It's, that was a beautiful little scene that I wasn't expecting. No, healthy depictions of masculinity in the last place you would look. Yes. Yeah. In a movie otherwise completely devoid of it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That was a nice scene. I'm really glad it was there. And from there, it really is kind of downhill, albeit not in a particularly aggressive way. We've lost all sense of pace by this point. Yeah. I think. We've At lost some point all it's Christmas. It's Christmas for a minute. We have a big party that kind of rambles around for a little while and doesn't really accomplish anything. Everyone touches the poor pregnant girl's stomach. That's awkward. So often. So often. But the script calls it out, which is great. But what's really interesting, too, is that it visually echoes, as everyone is touching the pregnant girl's stomach, we are visually echoing the boys touching the old 1960 cup winning football in the locker room as they go into the game. And it's, it, I don't know if it's intentional. I certainly don't know if it's doing anything. Mm, maybe. But maybe. it's an interesting visual echo, at least. Yeah, that's interesting. Because Chris Penn's character gets that speech about how I got what I want. I get everything that I want, which is almost yes. true. Like, it's true enough that he can say it and mean it. And there's still the haunting behind his eyes of everything else that that's, he's missing out because. But I do believe that he wanted this too, that he also wanted to be married and Penn. have a father yeah. or, or and be a father rather and have a, have a child. I believe that. And I believe that the characters in this film, like when you say about touching her belly, that, that they might also want that too, that they want family life, that they want the security that that can provide, especially in a place where that's the only security that you get is just like someone to come home to, you know, when you've got nowhere else to go. That's lovely and sad. Yeah. We cut from the party to Steph drinking coffee in the diner, which is where he runs into Nickerson. I have no idea how much time is supposed to have passed between these two events or indeed if any time is supposed to have passed between these two events. When we cut to him pouring and drinking coffee, it feels like maybe he's trying to sober up from being very drunk at oh, the party and doing his whole. And on the seventh day, they played football, which is a bad speech and it's badly written. And yeah. it's the weird soul connection to Catholicism yeah. in this film, except for him very gently taking off his cross right before he has sex. We're very conspicuous on the cross that he undoes from his neck yeah. and puts it aside. So all of that is odd and drunken. And then we're in the diner. And then we get the scene on the street where he confronts Nickerson. 
terrific and, stuff. And then it's Tom Cruise. And then here he's he is, just, right just all yeah. of a sudden, right there, you see Jerry Maguire. Like, yeah. here yeah. we go. This is the kid. Yeah. Not in control of his body yet. When he leaves after the great speech, which is delivered so well, and he's like kind of leaping, jumping, and turning around, and he's like half, and, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's it, interesting and odd. I wonder how much of that is intentional. I wonder how much of that is in his performance trying to be, for the fourth film running, a high school student at the age of 21. Yeah. I wonder how much he's trying to bring like a certain juvenile enthusiasm or, or something into that's his performance and how much that's just, yeah, you're right. Tom Cruise not completely in control of his instrument just yet. <laughs> And that's it. We get this gorgeously shot mm-hmm. sequence of Steph and Greg working alongside each other. This this grim depiction of the future of the two of them working side yes. by side inside in... this blast furnace that they are taking apart. The very notion of dismantling one of the things that used to make this town great. Mm. We're now, you know, the only work that's left is cleaning up, right? God, it's it's so hard. Tragic. It's heartbreaking work. Cruz really commits to it. Mm-hmm. But Lisa is waiting for him at the stairs at the end of the day. And she's brought Nickerson with her. Mm-hmm. And he's got a job in California and wants Steph to come play football. And everyone is happy and hugs. The end. The end. The yeah. fastest dismount I've seen really in a good long Really fast dismount. Time. And also no, no future for Lisa. She's obviously just stuck in this town. We will she, not mention her at this yeah, time. Yeah. Yeah. She's just excited and, and, and giving hugs and kisses. But her track is just as dismal as ever it was. So, yeah. Doesn't quite nail the landing, does it? No. It doesn't. And, and really does leave a much less positive impression than the first half of the film would have suggested. The first half of the film, I was I was there for it. I thought this is going to be probably number one on our list. Hey, let's use this effortless transition to get to discussion of the list, shall we? Oh, yes. It seems to me that any discussion of ranking these films requires us to be more consistent about our criteria than we have been oh, no. <laughs> up to this point. <laughs> yeah, sure. Because like Taps is third on the list because it's just a kind of solid drama. Yeah. Risky Business is second on the list because it is iconic. Outsiders is first on our list because it's our favorite. And Uh, mostly that's the emotional impact of the book, more even than the movie. Yes. Yeah. It's a very subjective list, but I think that's all right. It's our list. It's absolutely all right. Yeah. I don't think that we're trying to tell anyone that it should be their list as well. Uh, Absolutely. The authority of this list shall not be impugned. (laughs) It is etched into marble. (laughs) No, Right next to the AFI Top 100. Right, exactly. (laughs) No, I bring this up, though, just to kind of shed a light on which specific criteria we're applying to all the right moves. Because, for example, Mm. it doesn't rate as an iconic film. It has left no footprint. Yeah, that is true. It is, I think, at least as tight and as ordered as Taps in the first half, but kind of falters a little on the back half. I thought that Taps went crazy in the back half too, though, so in a very different way. Taps does go crazy, but it goes crazy with intention. Yes. It goes crazy with craft. That's true. This just kind of loses its focus a little more. Right. Just kind of falls into the cracks of its own making. Yeah. Yeah. So so what's your gut? My gut is that it would fall somewhere between Taps and either Risky Business or The Outsiders. I don't remember where everything is placed now. So The Outsiders is currently number one, Risky Business number two, Taps number three, Endless Love number four. Okay, Losing okay. it number five. We're certainly clear that it's better than Endless Love. Yes, yeah, I and better than Taps. I think it's definitely better than Taps. Yeah, agreed. So we're just debating whether or not it goes above or below Risky Business? Is it the new yeah. number two or the new number three? Yeah, yeah, I think that's correct. It's a really I, difficult conversation. It is. I, I personally think it's a stronger movie than Risky Business. Risky Business is just, what, what, what do you say, candy floss? Is that the British? <laughs> sure, yes. 
uh, a puff piece. Yeah, there's just not a lot to risky business for me, especially with the theatrical cut. There, it's just I know that it's iconic. Obviously, it is, but I have no interest in ever watching it again. But I think I would watch all the right moves again. Sure, I could see that argument. Interestingly, last week when we talked about risky business. Mm-hmm. We used basically the same argument to say Risky Business is probably a better film. It's probably a more technically competent film than The Outsiders. We just don't like it as much. Yeah. Yeah. So that's interesting. Yep. It's just a gut feeling. Yeah. So, yeah, my gut then is that I liked this more than Risky Business. Here's where I am, and here's where I'm pushing back on it, is that every argument that I can come up with puts this ahead of Risky Business. It puts all the right moves in second between The Outsiders and Risky Business, except when I say that, it sounds crazy. I, I know what you mean, because Risky Business is like the one. It's risky the one, it's is the sock slide, so it's the sunglasses, and if it's this the, is a list the neon. Of, yeah, if we're acknowledging the role that Iconicity plays in our ranking of these films... Mm, mm, I hear you. Then it's, it's hard to put this up. I think if we were ranking these films just on their first halves, right? I think we prefer the first <laughs> act of Risky Business to What Follows After, and we definitely yeah. prefer the first half of All the Right Moves to What Follows After. If we were ranking them just based on their first and strongest parts, mm-hmm. I think All the Right Moves would go ahead of Risky Business. But this falters so badly in the back half. It doesn't land any of that it potential. It is anywhere. much yeah. more wasted potential than Risky Business That is, is true. That is true. So for me, it has to go very close under Risky Business and still a good distance ahead of Taps. But yeah. third on the list for me. Yeah. I, I hear what you're saying. I do. I, I guess I just want to express my appreciation, especially for the design of the film, the setting, the location. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, the production design in general, I think, was really strong. This has been absolutely the best surprise I've had so far in this series. Yeah, yeah, this has been I the best agree. experience of sitting down to not, watch a film. Not at all what I expected either. I yeah. was expecting something much more like the early two thousands teen movies, you know, sure. some kind of Chris Evans as the football star kind of movie. But yeah, the, what were those? The not another teen movies? Yeah, I was yeah. putting a teen movie, <laughs> and this really wasn't that. So I, I was pleased. I, I I do hear what you're saying. I mean, risky business is risky business. It, it, it's it is a special movie. I concede. <laughs> I love that we're so <laughs> conflicted about this thing that really does not matter it to anyone matter but us. No, nobody cares. <laughs> this is just us affixing a final, you know, how yeah. many stars are we giving this? In well, the and this discussion. is such a difficult thing for me to do anyway. I'm so loath to pick favorites or to put things in any kind of order. You know, I can just like, why can't they sit side by side? Like Risk of Business and, and All the Right Moves. They're right next to each other. No, it's not how lists work. So my bad for making it harder. That's interesting, though. If we did that, I think we would just have two spots on the list, right? We would just have... Outsiders, Risky Business, All the Right Moves, and probably Taps as films that basically work. And Endless sure. Love and Losing It as films that basically yeah, don't. Yeah, just like thumbs up, thumbs down. Thumbs up, yeah. <laughs> that would be a lot easier. Why didn't we do it that way? Let me tell you, though, as we move forward, we're going to need more thumbs. <laughs> it's all up from here. Next week on the show, we finally escape 1983 and jump ahead to Cruz's seventh movie, Ridley Scott's 1985 fantasy legend i'm so excited we are going to be focusing on the 89 minute theatrical cut but yes, let's be honest told me about this we're probably going to be talking about the 114 minute director's cut that was released by ridley scott in 2002 with an entirely different soundtrack hey do you like tangerine dream I, tangerine I dream is in the theatrical cut the other cut completely different soundtrack i'm so interested i i'm looking forward to that i've never seen it have you 
I have seen the theatrical cut, right? But not the uh, revised director's cut, yeah, which is going to be an interesting process. If you buy the Blu-ray pack right now, which is available at all good online retailers, they have both versions of the film that on is that Blu-ray, so, cool. so that's nice and easy. Wow, so. that would be a fun thing to have. We'll check that out, and that yeah. is going to be a super fun discussion. Is it streaming anywhere? It is not streaming for free. It is available to stream from Amazon Prime to rent or okay. buy there. It is also available to rent from Redbox and Vudu. Whoa, The online Redbox. service run by Fandango. <laughs> I'm now getting some red flags about the quality of this film, Elizabeth. I'm not going to lie. This is going to be I mean. interesting. <laughs> I'm kind of surprised it's not on Tubi, to be honest. That seems like the kind of place that it would live. You're right. So there is still hope. <laughs> Guys, thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for sticking with us through this discussion of All the Right Moves. As I said, next week, Legend. The week after that, a little movie called Top Gun. Mm-hmm. Don't know if it's so come exciting. up in discussion very much. It is really, we're on an upward swing. Next week, working with Ridley Scott, this is going to be the first time that Cruz works with an established auteur director, which so cool. is going to be his pattern for the rest of his career. We're basically going to be introducing no new directors, no directors that you haven't already wow. heard of in the rest of his career It's going to be absolutely wild. And those discussions, just like this discussion, just like every discussion here on The Last Star in Hollywood, is only possible because of you, dear listener, and your fantastic support. We are so touched, so grateful, so humbled and honored Mm -hmm. by the support that we've seen over the last few weeks. So a sincere thank you to you all. If you would like to support the show, head on over to patreon.com slash laststarpod where you can pledge your support. You can also find our free accessible to everyone discussion of the director's cut of the ending of Risky Business. Mm -hmm. And if you are a supporter, you can head over there now for our discussion of 1993's Last Action Hero, (laughs) a movie we chose to talk about because it had last in the title. (laughs) And let me tell you, that is the single craziest film production story I have ever read. So exciting to hear all of that. This was an absolute blast to talk about. So if you're interested, head over there. You can find that and our poll for our November bonus episode, Mm -hmm. which is going to be Dirty Dancing, no spoilers, but unless there's a huge electoral swing here, (laughs) it is going to be Dirty Dancing. And that is going to be fantastic. We're going to have to sit down because it's our job. We're going to have to sit down like the weekend after Thanksgiving. And spent two hours talking about Dirty Dancing. (laughs) I love that. Ah, shucks, y'all. Fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) That's going to do it for us. We'll be back next week with Legend. Until then, take care. We'll see you.